Hello! Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. Today's episode focuses on the field of neuromechanics. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lena Ting about human movement and the technologies that help us study it. It's a really exciting time to be part of this field. I'm honestly kind of jealous because the work they're doing is very cool. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks again so much for being here. So you got a master's in biomechanical engineering and a PhD in mechanical engineering, both at Stanford. Yes. And now you're a professor of biomedical engineering at both Emory and Tech. Is that right? Yes, we have a joint department between Emory and Georgia Tech, and my faculty position is actually at Emory through the School of Medicine. I also had my lab at Tech for a number of years, so it was a little bit fluid going mm-hmm. back and forth between the two. And so you're also the co-director of Georgia Tech's Neural Engineering Center. Correct. That sounds really cool. How and when did you know that neuromechanics was your thing? I don't think that neuromechanics was even a word when I started. (laughs) So when I was an undergraduate, I was looking at different research projects, and I had actually done one where they were looking at coatings for pipes, but they were modeling it off of hair, like fur. And so that was the first sort of biological inspiration thing that I saw, and it wasn't something I wanted to continue. And then I worked in a lab that actually does more similar things to what I do now, which is human motor control, studying hand-eye coordination. But somehow I, it was a bit beyond my reach at the time. And I decided I wanted to do something where I integrated robotics and animal motion. And I'd been interested in robotics, and I found out that most of the robots were pretty slow in doing manufacturing and things like that. So I met a graduate student in robotics who had just heard a new professor in biology speak about insects and how they have all these limbs and how they have to coordinate how they move. And he suggested that I go talk to this professor, who's Robert Full, who became my research advisor. So this is a pretty recent field. Right. The integration of the neural control and Mm -hmm. the mechanics of movement before it was sort of separate. There were the people who thought that if you wanted to understand movement, you should study the brain and the brain would tell you how to move. And then there were some engineers who said, well, actually, you have to study the body. And they were building these devices, sort of toy mechanical walking machines that would walk on their own. So we had, on the one hand, the neuroscientist saying, your brain has to do really complicated computations, and then it tells your body what to do. Mm. And the mechanical engineer saying, if your body's shaped like this, this is what it's easy for it to do. And there was that's sort of where it was when I came into the field. And so now it's more of an integration of the two. Right. So now it's very widely understood that this interaction between the two is extremely rich and Mm -hmm. interesting and gives rise to all of the different kinds of movements and behaviors and individual differences that we see amongst regular people, amongst athletes, in disease. Um, And that's really exploding now, I think. Mm. So can you just briefly summarize the type of research that you do in your lab? So mostly we're interested in how you know, the brain and the body work together to produce movement. And because I'm a mechanical engineer, we're really interested in, okay, if your body can do all of these different things, what is the nervous system doing uh, to facilitate that? So you have to have a good understanding of mechanics and a good understanding of neurophysiology 
And we, we also build computational models of this so we can sort of test, would this work? If we put this type of muscle together with this kind of neural circuit, mm -hmm. does it actually produce the movement that we think? Because if we can build it or simulate it, then we can understand it a little bit better. We also use some robotic devices to interact with people and also to just make a physical simulation of this sort of brain-body interaction for movement. So just like to put it in a very simple way, you kind of have this model of human movement that you've made computationally, and then you take someone who maybe doesn't move as expected, and you kind of find out what, what piece of this puzzle they're missing, and you try and fix that. That's great. We haven't fixed anyone yet, but <laughs> you we, <will. laughs> we hope to. And we focus a lot on standing and walking, which are really fundamental behaviors, mm -hmm. and they're really important for independent living, and they impact a lot of different types of neurological disorders, but also other, you know, orthopedic, and even there may be quirks in certain psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. So how we walk and how we move reflects lots of parts of ourselves and our health, and that, that's also beginning to be recognized now. So for example, with one of our models, we study people with Parkinson's disease. And so when we apply our model, we said, wow, this here's a pathway. This muscle is being activated in a way that's not predicted by our model. So mm -hmm. now we have to add this pathway in what affects it, um, how does it change with medication, with deep brain stimulation. And it's really our insight into you know how this reflex responds to, basically we push people over. Well, we have a device they stand on and it moves. So it's like when the bus starts moving or pulling the rug out from under <laughs> somebody. And then we have a very precise sort of timing between when that happens and when the person actually activates their muscles in response. So there's sensory information. So the lag time. Yeah, exactly. So we study these delays very, very carefully mm -hmm. um, because it allows you to say, oh, for the first 100 milliseconds, say they're in free fall. It's too fast for your nervous system. And so there are things you can do, like stand with your feet wider apart or hold on to something when you're expecting mm -hmm. to be destabilized. Or sometimes people you know, contract all their muscles. And sometimes pathologically, they'll contract all their muscles. So there's different implications. It might help you right away. But then in the case of Parkinson's disease, people would be really stiff and ultimately fall over. So we study that. And then, OK, what kind of corrective response does that cause? And mm -hmm. what are the ways in which that can also seemingly be helpful, but maybe be overhelpful. Hmm. Yeah, this seems like a really hard task because you have to, like you said, know a lot about the nervous system as well as the musculoskeletal system. And every individual participant moves in a different way or, I don't know, I guess it is very individualized, is it not? I think it is. And that's something that we have been pushing and I just came back from a conference in biomechanics and that's being appreciated hmm. a lot more. So for many years, it was, this is how people walk. Here's the way everybody walks. Here are the principles by which everybody walks. And actually just saw these really interesting talks taking into account people's like personality. Um, we've shown wow. differences in dancers versus people with Parkinson's versus stroke versus some people we suspect were on the Taekwondo team. <laughs> we haven't studied them explicitly, but that's where the dancers came in. Hmm. So they have the same principles of movement, but because they're training for doing these particular tasks that are very challenging, 
we've shown that that training actually affects how they walk normally. And that's something that's very intuitive for all of us, where you could maybe identify a dancer or a football player. And we wondered why that was and how that might happen. And there's just so many ways you could walk, and mm-hmm. uh, everyone has a different walking style. This is something we don't really know how to study, but uh, we're starting to do that. People are starting to recognize it's important, Mm -hmm. and it's even important when people have, let's say, knee replacement surgery. Sometimes it's been thought, well, it's just your joint is bad, and now people are beginning to realize, well, maybe your joint is bad because you're walking in a way that's bad for your joint. Right. So that's sort of really at the vanguard of where people are thinking now with uh, orthopedics. This hasn't been in orthopedics that much. It seems like a trend where things are getting more personalized in fields. Right. And on the one hand, that's great because we know we're all different. But on the other hand, there are common principles. And so trying to ride the line between, well, everyone's just completely different Mm. versus I understand movement and I understand that these are the ways in which people can be different and the reasons that people can be different. And it's not just willy-nilly, right, that there are some organizing principles is really important because otherwise you're just left with everybody's a unique mm-hmm. unicorn. And that's not that helpful either for understanding how to treat people. And I guess that's where your computational model will, would come in. Yes. So we think, okay, we have this model and in some people yeah, we, tweak. we tweak these things, we tweak the other mm-hmm. things. It changes the way science is done too because that's more difficult. We have more parameters. We have more... Like, how do we know if we're right Yeah. <laughs> versus like, here's the answer. Right. right and yeah. just comparing whether or not people follow this standard kind of model. Hmm. So I'm guessing the main motivator for this kind of research would really be movement disorders, right? Well, that's the medical motivation. It's also fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. What is your personal motivation for this? Why do you think it's important? Well, you know, it's interesting because people always talk about like what you know, how did you know this is what you wanted to do? And I think I struggled with, you know, finding my passion for a long time. Don't we all? <laughs> and I, I don't even know if I believe in that anymore. I think um, a lot of it's just chance and opportunities. So mm-hmm. I happened to go in a lab with a professor who I found very inspiring. And I worked on cockroaches running around oh, wow. and <laughs> crabs running around and decided I want to move to people. And I didn't really know, but the more expertise that you develop in an area, the more interesting it becomes mm-hmm. because there's all these questions that you didn't know existed. So in a sense, it's hard to know what your passion is until you really dive into something. And then what you dive into could be fairly random. But a lot of the questions I think pertain to my own life because I like to do a lot of sports. And mm. after college, I went to China because my parents came from there and people could tell that I was not from there, just by the way I walked. Wow. So a lot of these questions about individual differences and in our experience and how we learn to move have a lot of applicability in my own life. What would you say are the most common techniques that you use in your lab, either for data collection or data analysis? So we do mostly experiments on humans. So they come in and we put the dots on them to track <laughs> their motions with the cameras that are used in motion capture and animation. We also record electrical activity in the muscles because they reflect sort of the last output of the nervous system. You have motor neurons that activate your muscles, and Mm. then we do different types of analysis, 
factor analysis, things like that. The fancy word for it now is machine learning. <laughs> yeah. And so we do the machine learning analysis of uh, the patterns that are in there and um, relate that back to what kind of computation or structure of the nervous system is required to generate this. Is this from sensory feedback? Is it from a pattern that I remembered? Hmm. And that helps us kind of read the electrical signals coming out uh, to the muscles. And you, you have to understand some mechanics, too, because when one muscle goes on, it might cause a very different movement in one context versus another. And recently, we've started doing EEG, which is recording electrical signals on your scalp that reflect the activity of the brain. And so I'm guessing there's not a lot of manipulation, I guess, in your experiments. It's mostly observational. You Yes, we're very ob observational in the sense that um, we're not usually giving people drugs or anything like that right. to see what happens, but we're changing the sort of biomechanical conditions or challenges that they mm -hmm. have to deal with. And then we also look at different populations. And the when we want to think about causality, that's where the modeling comes in. Could this type of sensory input generate this type of motor output? And then how does that change when we look at somebody with a lot of ballet training or mm -hmm. somebody who has Parkinson's? And we've done interventions where they do some kind of rehabilitation and see how that has improved. So we work with rehabilitationists who do different interventions, and that would be sort of a, a causal mechanism. Eventually, we'd like to start doing some direct manipulations of the brain through uh, you know, zapping brains with transcranial magnetic DBS and stimulation and DBS. Yes, mm -hmm. we do have some pilot data Very cool. on that. And sort of that's a direction to go in once we've kind of characterized what we could on this end. Hmm. Um, now, can you manipulate the brain or the body and make predictions about what right. that would change? Moving forward, do you think that is where the next big discovery lies in manipulating the brain and seeing how that affects the outcome? Yes, that would absolutely. We're getting to an age where we can start doing that and we can start doing it during behaviors. And a lot of it is starting in animal work mm -hmm. with optogenetics, um, but also just electrical stimulation. And the possibility of doing it in humans is increasing now with people having electrodes in their brain for various reasons, usually mm -hmm. because they have epilepsy or Parkinson's disease. And we can take advantage of those situations to kind of test what various regions of the brain, what kind of information they're receiving, and what happens when you activate them mm -hmm. sort of artificially to look at causality in, in the brain. And we're absolutely interested in moving in that direction. Why haven't we yet? What, what is the limiting factor? Is it more kind of just because we haven't done it before and we might fear what, what it would change? Mostly it's the technology. Okay. Hmm. Right. So it wasn't really possible when I was a okay. student to actually do these kinds of interventions. And then it takes a while for a field to develop to the point where people can use the technology rather than develop it. So for a long time, if you wanted to do transcranial magnetic stimulation, you were basically developing it and developing how would you do it and how is the right way. Mm. And that, since it wasn't really my primary interest, I wanted a more mature tool that I could use and somebody could say, here are the guidelines right. on how to do it. And I could integrate that with the kind of work that we're doing. So we're discussing it right now. How would, how would we do integrate that kind of stimulation with 
somebody's standing, somebody, well, we're trying to knock them over. It's not the easiest thing to do because <laughs> you have to hold the coil on the scalp in a very particular mm. position. So even now, most of those types of things are done uh, while people are seated. Which so, defeats the purpose a little bit. Exactly. And we <laughs> think the nervous system is a different state. And certainly the mechanics of your body is in a different state mm. when you're seated. So that's been definitely a challenge, especially in balance and gait. So the studies of brain imaging during gait before have been people, say, lying in an fMRI scanner and thinking about walking or moving their feet, but wow. not really moving. And now there are developments in mobile EEG where people can get signals from the brain. It's still really difficult because the muscle activity is actually a lot stronger than the brain activity. Mm -hmm. So it's still not that easy to get signals, even just measuring the signals from the brain while a person's moving around. What about using things like virtual reality? Is that something that's being integrated in the field at all? Yeah, definitely. Most of that's visually based. Hmm. And for some of our behaviors, vision is a bit too slow. And you I need the actual movement. Yeah, you need the you need the movement. So then you get the what we somatosensory feedback that's mm -hmm. sensory information from your body t talking about how the body moves rather than just uh, what you see. Right. So those have to be matched. And then that's also challenging in terms of are people really believing that that's what's happening hmm. outside. I, I saw a talk recently saying maybe the lag is still too long mm -hmm. um, because our nervous system is really used to this very precise yeah. timing. And do you, with all this new technology that's going on either with robotics or like we just said, virtual reality, do you envision a point where we have these robotic prosthetics that are just available and affordable for most people to use? Is that something that we can expect in the near future? Well, it depends on how, how near. This is actually quite timely because I was just speaking to Elliot Rouse at the University of Michigan, and he the, earlier this year put out a open source lower limb prosthesis, powered prosthesis. Mm -hmm. So before this, they've been owned by companies. People don't know what the algorithms are. Right. And he's, he's now released this. So it's much more affordable and allows people to try different types of controllers. That's great. Some of the other work, you know, in 3D printing where people are just posting their designs are out there. And there's a recent drive in our department where we were talking about affordable technologies, global healthcare, where mm -hmm. you need things that are robust and cheap and that people can make. So I think that that's a good direction for technologies to go. And I just saw another talk about a, uh, a colleague who's trying to develop a robot so that it can go in people's homes. But it was really driven because robotics really haven't made it into people's homes yet. Right. So that's still something that we haven't quite figured out how to do well. Yeah, there seems to be a disagreement, I guess, between the available technology and the accessibility to it. What is the point of it being there if most people can't use it? That's kind of what I was trying to get at. Right. And part of it is that we think that controlling these devices to interact physically with people is a lot harder than, say, putting an app on your cell phone. So even, you know, the analogy is that you can have this computer play chess with somebody and beat them, but that same computer would have difficulty really moving the chess pieces. Hmm. And that's where the neuromechanics comes in because... You know, you can put whatever you want on the screen, but when you have to start interacting with a real limb, then there's 
there's gravity and there's the dynamics of the limb and there's information coming back that has to be mm. uh, fed back. And so it's a very, it's an ongoing movement that you have to recompute constantly rather than, okay, uh, move the piece to here and then wait and let it happen. You're having to take in new information and update it all the time. And it could be from the external world, from your own body. Mm. Um, and, and people, you know, you have to make corrections. And so that level of interaction, we don't really know that much about. I see. So because every prosthetic, I guess, would have to train to whatever individual it belongs to, that is kind of a limiting factor for it to be so accessible. Right, right. So the interface between the people and the machines is a very active area of research where I think we don't even know what we're supposed to ask. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've started some work on human-robot interaction where we were trying to understand how people interact with each other in a physical way when they're mm -hmm. holding hands, when they're walking, because we didn't even know how much force people apply to each other. So when somebody... In fact, I had a colleague say, well, we want to design this robotic walker. Can you tell me, you know, what's, what does a human need? Well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much force. I don't know how much power it needs. I don't know how it needs to work in relation to the person to actually affect their movement, right. even though we do this all the time, right? So m most of human movement has been a single person in a room, not touching anything except the floor. And so this whole idea of interacting with objects and then has come into play, like picking up objects, you need that. But then interacting with another intelligent being, whether it's a human or a robot, is really complex. Because now I have to estimate what I think you're going to do, hmm. respond to what you're actually doing. So is that something that also might be a big thing in the near future? Definitely. We started our human-robot and human-human so physical interaction <laughs> work, I don't know, five five six, seven years oh, okay. ago. So it's already been... Well, we started, and I think there was maybe a handful of papers, and then a lot of people coming up to us saying, oh, we're studying human-human hmm. interactions too. And it's taken a while to get started up. I was at a conference earlier this year where we were starting to talk about it. So there's starting to be work coming out. Mm -hmm. But again, it's the kind of work where we didn't really know what we were supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. And there wasn't a history of like, how do you study this? Hmm. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. This might be a silly question, but are we at risk of living in a future where people have access so easily to prosthetics and robotics where we have bionic humans with super strength and super speed? <laughs> Is that something that can happen, or am I just watching too much sci-fi? I think it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> For I, Again, I guess I've been to a lot of conferences this year, but I saw Hugh Herr speak, and he is a professor at MIT who, who himself uh, is an amputee, and he's a, a rock climber. And so he said after he got his prostheses, he was climbing better than right. he ever had. And what's the, where do we draw the line? So his goal is to be better, have better legs. He said, I have better, I'm going to have better legs than you. Okay. And a lot of the sort of drivers right now of that kind of technology is industry and the military where they can build an exoskeleton to keep people from injuring themselves or allowing them to lift larger loads than they mm -hmm. normally would because that's a big issue. There are exoskeletons that help people with spinal cord injury learn to walk better or to assist them to walk. But that's a much smaller market, and unfortunately, this is driven 
by market forces. Yeah, everything is. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is sort of an area that we might call human augmentation. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And with any technology, there's always the uses that talk about with helping humans and helping human health, and there's always a flip side. So I'm not sure it's different from other technologies. Hmm. People might say that about your cell phone. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope we know how to deal with it once, if we get there. <laughs> well, we have a great Center for Neuroethics here, and mm. we actually talk about this in some of the classes that I teach. Oh, good. Because, you know, you really have to think about what are the paths is something that we're actually actively doing, or maybe it's people are going to do it anyway, so you have to address it. Right. And then what's the impact on society? A lot of the things we talk about is actually disparity where there might be some people who can afford to have the advantages of the technology and other people who can't. And, you know, we're sort of at that place with laptops right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. What are you most excited for the future of this field right now? Well, it's a great time to be in the field. Lots of people are interested and I think the integration of these new types of wearables, robotics, along with the brain imaging and neurostimulation makes it a really good time in sort of neuromechanics and, and motor control. A lot of these advances have been coming, but not yet really able to be used during really dynamic movements. Mm. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about how, how people move, how to improve how they move, how to diagnose impairments through the sort of confluence of technologies right now. And a lot of it's bringing back old sort of physiology that people had questions about, had ideas about, but didn't have the technology to test. And we were sort of in that state for the last 50 years, let's say. Mm -hmm. We've been kind of in an old field studying walking, (laughs) right? That people have been studying walking for a long time. And again, they'd say, why don't you just fMRI them? Well, And they have to lie down and they have to imagine it. So it seemed like a lot of these technologies were not having an impact on our field because they had to be wearable and light Mm -hmm. and wireless and all of these things. And now it seems like that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so last but not least, if you had to do it all over again, (laughs) (laughs) what advice would you give to your younger self? Or would you do anything differently I probably wouldn't have worried so much. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, I understand the students who say, well, how did you know? Because I struggled with that a lot. And there are some people who seem like at a young age, they were like, this is what I want to do. And I almost never, I don't know if I ever came to that conclusion ever. Mm. And part of it is because I'm interested in bridging different fields. And so that means a lot of looking around and diving in to different things. And it seemed like for a while that I was I would try one thing and that wasn't it. And I would try another thing and that wasn't it. I'd try another thing and that wasn't it. But in the end, it all looks like it came together because there was something driving that question, but I didn't feel satisfied with just studying animals and then just doing simulations or just looking at biomechanics. And so it seems like I was changing fields every time and maybe abandoning what I had done before. But in the end, it all came together. Mm. But it it really required that journey. And I think it was important that every time I went into a field, I felt like this was it. I'm going to be part of this field because now I am part of all of those communities. Um, Sometimes people kind of dip a toe in and they're like, well, that's not really for me. And I think you can't know until you just wear it 
and you know you try it on and mm -hmm. then uh, make a mark and then decide okay what next when I had my own lab I was able to bridge these fields where it seemed like I had been a tourist in these different fields for a while and I was able to find a space that felt comfortable for me to integrate them and mm -hmm. part of that is I know that that's my personality too that I like a lot of different things yeah that's refreshing to hear because I am similar in the way that I like different things and so mm -hmm. it gives me hope I guess to hear that I can work in a lot of different things and integrate them all together one mistake I see students now trying to do is trying to do all of the things at once <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't usually work mm -hmm. so it's like if you're gonna go heavy into this area do it and understand very deeply what you know you know establish some expertise and then know okay what did I like about that what didn't I like about that and then you can go to another lab but you want to have something to take away from it yeah that's good advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our thank conversation. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.